One of the most popular story archetypes is the rags to riches story. Many of our favorite books and movies employ this basic plot. Think of great stories like Cinderella or The Ugly Duckling or even Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The poor underdog protagonist goes through tremendous suffering and difficulty but gains enormous wealth or power and has to balance the duties that come with that new privilege. The quintessential rags to riches stories usually involve an orphan who is left destitute or at least in some kind of terrible situation. Think of Oliver Twist or Little Orphan Annie or even Harry Potter. In the course of these stories, these characters come into a great inheritance and also gain a new family where they find love and acceptance that they so longed for. Have you ever considered why we find these stories so compelling? What is it about the rags to riches story arc that's so satisfying to us? Why is it that we long to see those who are destitute made full? Why do we long to see those who are estranged and fatherless brought into rich familial love? Each of these elements uncover our basic human longings in a fallen world for things to be set right, for us to be made whole, for us to have communion with another. Like all good stories, the rags to riches story arc imitates and resonates with the most glorious story. The best stories echo the one being told by the greatest storyteller, our triune God, the author of all things. And this morning, I want us to turn our attention again to that great story with a focus on one of its central elements, our adoption as sons. You might be tempted to think that adoption is one of those one-off metaphors that the Bible uses to describe our salvation, maybe just a minor theme that the Bible picks up here and there. This morning, I hope to show you that adoption is far from a minor metaphor in Scripture, but is in fact one of the central descriptions that the Bible gives us concerning the way God saves his people. I also want to show you how crucial this biblical doctrine is to the Christian life here and now. And further, I want to show us what adoption means for our future, our future hope. What do I mean by adoption? Adoption is that work of God where God takes his enemies those who are estranged from him, those who are destined for death and destruction, and brings them into his family as sons to inherit glory. And how all of that works and what that means for us here and now and for our future is what we'll be reflecting on this morning. The Bible, of course, tells a kind of rags to riches story of rebellious sons who through their own pride, selfishness, and sin are plunged into darkness and misery. But through the gracious plan and work of the triune God, they are adopted into a royal family with a glorious inheritance. As we look at the theme of adoption in Galatians 4, 1 through 7, we can see four aspects of it. And if you're someone who likes outlines to follow, this is my outline. 
We see the preparation for the son, the provision of a son, the privileges of the son, and the promise of the son. So we have the preparation, the provision, the privileges, and the promise. To understand the preparation for the son, we need to go back to the beginning of the story. Adam was placed in the garden and given the task of maturing into a royal son, a kind of king over the creation. In Luke's genealogy of Jesus, he calls Adam the son of God. He had no earthly father, so in one sense, God was his only father. But we're also told that God created Adam in his image and likeness. What does that mean? Well, in Genesis 5, we're told that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness and after his own image named Seth. Sons are quite literally the image of their father, as in the saying, that boy is the spitting image of his father. But Adam also carried certain duties with his sonship, with his being the image of God. You might say he was to fulfill an office of sonship. Part of the meaning of being the image of God was that Adam was to represent his father in the creation, in the garden, as a son. Yahweh delegated the task of rule and dominion to him, and he was to mature in this royal office at the appointed time. We all know, of course, that Adam became a rebellious son. He squandered the wealth he had been given and was cast out of the garden. As a result of his disobedience, God put Adam and Eve under a curse, which included a cursed relationship with the very creation that he was to steward. Listen to this from Genesis. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam's rebellion brought about spiritual death, of course, in his relationship to his father, but also physical death in humanity and in the creation. Paul tells us that sin came into the world through this rebellious son, and death came through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned in Adam. All of humanity, with Adam as their father, were under this curse. But Yahweh did not abandon his plan to have a faithful son over his household in creation. In Genesis 3, he promised a son who would be at enmity with the seed of the serpent, with the sons of the devil. He promised a faithful son who would crush the serpent's head. As we read in our Old Testament lesson, the initial fulfillment of this is in Genesis 15. Yahweh calls out Abram, and he makes a covenant with him to set apart a family through whom he would bring up a faithful son. He made promises to Abram of a worldwide family that would come through him. He promised a new land, kind of new garden, for his people as an inheritance. He also promised to bring about blessing for the nations through this offspring. This family, as we know, grew to 12 tribes and was afflicted in slavery, as God had predicted to Abram in Genesis 15, for 400 years. 
At the appointed time, Yahweh raised up his servant Moses to deliver his people, who were now a great multitude, from this slavery. In the Exodus, God kept his promise to Abraham to bring forth his offspring, to bring forth his son, and give them the promised land. God redeemed Israel from slavery, from Pharaoh's slavery, because, he says, Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Like Adam, Yahweh set Israel up as a son with certain duties and responsibilities. He brought Israel out of slavery. He gave them a law to be a guardian over them while Israel was a son under age until the appointed time, until his son would mature. He gave Israel the tabernacle so that he could bring his presence among them. He led them through a conquest of the land until they obtained the inheritance of the land. But God's promise to bless the nations had not yet been completed. Once Israel was in the promised land, God raised up a king, David, a son after his own heart, to represent and shepherd the people. Yahweh made a covenant with David, again, continuing Genesis 3, continuing the promise to Abraham, now a promise to David, to make him a house, to raise up a son from his descendants. Listen to what he says about this son in 2 Samuel 7. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. Furthermore, Yahweh promised that his throne, this son, his throne would be established forever. This son would come from David and would have an everlasting kingdom. But we know, of course, Israel, like Adam, was a rebellious son. Israel, like Adam, was exiled from the land. Israel, like Adam, incurred curses from the law for transgressing the covenant. Israel, too, had become enslaved to false gods, to lusts, to unrighteousness. Israel needed a new exodus from slavery. But the Lord's promise to Abraham had not been set aside. The father had not abandoned his plan from the beginning to have a faithful son over his household. Indeed, all of these things had been preparation for the son. What Israel needed, what all humanity in Adam need, is the provision of a faithful son. Paul tells us in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. All that scripture has taught us up to this point about what it means to be a faithful son finds its culmination in the Son of God. He is the divine Son, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from all eternity past. Paul calls the Son the image of the invisible God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is one with his Father in love, in the love of the Spirit, and he does only what he sees his father doing. Human sonship is the copy of which divine sonship is the original. The son is sent from the father. At the appointed time, at the right time, at the fullness of time in his eternal plan, the father sent forth his son. And this sending is the climactic event and a story that moves from Adam to Abraham to Moses, to David, 
and ultimately to Jesus. God is doing something new and sudden, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. He's keeping his promises to Abraham that he's been working out through salvation history. Like the birth of a baby, the moment comes upon the mother suddenly. But the preparation for that moment has been taking place for many months before. So the birth of the faithful son has been long anticipated, but it arrives suddenly. Verse 4, again, the son is sent from the father to be born of a woman. He becomes flesh and he takes to himself a human nature. He is the eternal son, but he takes on flesh to fulfill the task, the office of human sonship to be the new Adam. He comes to do what Adam did not do, to be the faithful image of God. He resists the devil and his temptation and matures in obedience through suffering. It says next that he's sent to be born under the law. He's born of a woman, born under the law. That is, as a Jew, as an Israelite. He is a faithful, he's faithful as a son under the law where Israel was not. He comes under the law, but in his faithfulness as a son, he reaches maturity where Adam and Israel did not. He matures humanity beyond the law, beyond the old order. He is also David's son, according to the flesh, and faithfully fulfills the office of messianic sonship. After he is appointed the Son of God in power at his resurrection, he ascends to the heavenly throne, to an everlasting throne, and an everlasting kingdom. Verse 5 says he is sent to redeem those who were under the law. He takes upon himself the curses of the law on behalf of the people. He's the representative for Israel and for Adam. He bears the curses of Deuteronomy and the curses of Genesis. And bearing the curse, he removes the curse for those who are united to him. Paul here is invoking redemption language, which makes clear that he has a new exodus in mind. Slaves are redeemed. Redemption language means bringing out of slavery. The exodus is a rags to riches story that prefigures the great exodus, the new exodus that happens in Christ. Israel, like all in Adam, are in slavery to flesh, to sin, to death. And Christ becomes our Passover lamb to take away the sins of the world. In the first exodus, Yahweh brought out his son out of slavery and gave him the law. He put his tabernacle in their midst to be present with them. And he led them to inherit the land that he promised to Abraham. But now in the new covenant, we see that all of these were types and shadows of the reality to come. All of these were initial fulfillments of the promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham a worldwide family, a land and a blessing for the nations. Yahweh wasn't done when he gave Israel 12 tribes, when he gave Israel a multitude, when he gave Israel a sliver of land in the Middle East, when he gave Israel a law and a temple. These things were for the time of Israel's childhood, before the people of God entered into full maturity in the faithful son. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that Christ, the faithful son, is the promised seed of Abraham. And the true children of Abraham, the worldwide family that was promised, are those who are found in Christ. Those who have been baptized into Christ 
and have put on Christ. The promise was not, of course, just for the Jewish nation, but for the nations of the world. And the nations are the inheritance for the Son. In Romans 4, Paul tells us that Abraham was not to inherit only a little piece of land in Palestine, but the whole world. The entire world is the promised land for the people of God. The ends of the earth are the possession of the Son. Yahweh also promised blessings to the nations. And Paul tells us the blessings that flow to the nations are not some generic kind of blessing in the sense that we usually mean it today. I'm just blessed. Not a generic blessing. But the blessings to the nations is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Righteousness. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The Son of God was sent by the Father to secure the promises to Abraham. The Father made preparation for the Son and he made provision of a Son so that we might share in the privileges of the Son. Up to now, maybe you are asking yourself, didn't he say this sermon was about adoption? What does all this have to do with that? Well, I'm really glad that you asked. Paul tells us that God sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. God, the eternal son, faithfully enacted and fulfilled the office of human sonship so that we can receive adoption as sons. Because he has been a faithful son and has paid our debt and has borne the curse, he has made a way for us to be welcomed into the fellowship with the Father as a true son. And this adoption happens through our union with Christ. Paul tells us, again, in the previous chapter of Galatians, that as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, have been clothed with Christ like a royal robe. By faith, we have become one with Christ, so that everything that is true of Him is now true of us. All that is His is now ours. We have been crucified with Christ in His crucifixion, and our old self is dead. We have been raised with Christ in His resurrection and declared righteous. He bore the curse for us, and now we are forgiven and declared righteous sons. Now we have a new standing as sons in the faithful Son of God. Before we were children of wrath, enslaved to the flesh, and our father was the devil. Now because the father sent the faithful son who loved, him, who loved me and gave himself for me, as Paul says, we can claim God as our father. Paul says in Ephesians 1, another important adoption text in the New Testament, The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All along, the Father has planned our adoption in the Son. And because of his work of redemption, we now share in the son's privileges. Let's consider some of these privileges. We now relate to the heavenly father as our father. 
Christ teaches us to pray, Our Father. And the Father loves us as He loves His own Son. As one writer put it, because we are adopted, we are now objects of His fatherly goodness. He cares for us as a good father should. He provides for us. He protects us. He shows compassion to His children, and He knows our frame. Now that we are adopted in Christ, we are true children of the Father, not illegitimate. And so He disciplines us as a loving father should. Our Father treats us like true sons and trains us that we might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Just as a good father doesn't leave his son to wallow in his disobedience, so our Heavenly Father gives us security by disciplining us and restoring us to the path of life. Do not grow weary when you are reproved by your Father. This is a great privilege of our adoption. Whatever your experience has been with your earthly father, you now have a perfect heavenly father through your adoption into his family. We have been adopted into a new family name with a family heritage. We are members of a royal family whose kingdom will not have an end. Maybe you came from a broken family or you have a family history that you're not proud of. We all have a biography that apart from Christ would be a mess like Adam's. Now, because we have been adopted in Christ, our biographies have been forever changed. Our family histories have been forever altered. We have made a clean break with who we once were. We now have a new family with a new family history and family stories. We belong to a family with a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. Because God is our Father through adoption, we have an ultimate allegiance to His family. This is the family that will last forever. Look to your left. Look to your right. These are your true brothers and sisters. Through Jesus, our elder brother, we gain many new siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we share the hope of the life to come. We gain older brothers and sisters to mentor us, and younger brothers and sisters to encourage and admonish. As adopted sons of the Father, we are now welcome at the family table to dine together with our elder brother every week and receive all his benefits. Verse 6 tells us, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now that we share in Christ, we have the Spirit of Christ, dwelling in us, the same Spirit that empowered Christ to fulfill His human office of sonship, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. That Spirit enables us to call upon our Heavenly Father. We have a taste of heaven now, the Spirit making His home in us. The Spirit enables and leads us to fellowship with the Father. We cry out to Him in prayer, not as a vague cry to an unknown force, but to our Heavenly Father. Speaking with and praising our Father becomes a kind of second nature to us through the Spirit. Prayer to our Father is like breathing oxygen. It's vital to our life, and it's also the most ordinary thing in the world. Paul says that the Spirit enables us to cry, Abba, Father. 
Abba just means father in Aramaic. The only other use of this word in scripture, besides the passage here in Galatians and Galatians and the passage in Romans 8 uh, that Carl read, is in Mark 14. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane to his Father using the words, Abba, Father. We now address the Father the way Jesus does because we're now adopted as sons. The context of that prayer in Mark 14 is also instructive. The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is crying out to his Father with great intensity, anticipating the great suffering that he is about to endure at the cross. Jesus is also submitting to his Father's will to do the work that he has given him to do. So the Spirit of Christ in us cries out, Abba, Father, cries to the Father in this way. Father, hears our cries in our suffering and does not leave us or forsake us. The Spirit also leads us in humble submission to our Father's will to say, not what I will, but what you will. We bring our prayers and petitions to the Father in the power of the Spirit, and He hears us, and He grants our prayers because we have been adopted in the Son. Another privilege of our adoption as sons in the Son is the Spirit's transformation work. We are no longer slaves to the flesh. We are now led by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Son. This means we are free to obey. We have liberty to live like a faithful son. The Father does not merely call us sons in Christ. He makes us into sons in Christ. The Spirit is conforming us, shaping us into Christ's very image, the image of the perfect Son. Because we have been adopted in the faithful Son, we are being transformed into a faithful Son. All of these adoption privileges are means for assurance. Paul says, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you love the Father? This is the Spirit of the Son at work in you. Do you love the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ? This is the Spirit of the Son at work in you. Do you cry out to God as your Heavenly Father? This is the Spirit of the Son at work in you. The Spirit assures us that we are adopted as His sons. We have received immeasurable benefits and privileges through our adoption in Christ. All of these privileges also come with duties, with obligations. Paul says in Romans 8 that we are debtors. This is not a debt that we can repay, nor should we seek to. Rather, we've been given an incredible privilege of being royal sons, and so we ought to act like it. Live as sons in your workplace, in your home, in all your dealings in the world, remember who you are. You are a royal son with incredible privileges. And whatever you do, represent the family name. Lastly, these privileges also contain a future promise for the sons. Verse 7 says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if, if a son, then an heir through God. Paul calls us heirs. Similar, similarly, in Ephesians 1, he speaks about our adoption in Christ. He speaks of a future inheritance that we have yet to possess. 
Like Israel who was delivered out of slavery in Egypt and awaited possession of the promised land, so we are adopted heirs who wait for our future inheritance. We have received the adoption as sons already, but Paul also says that we eagerly await for our adoption as sons. How can that be? And what does that mean? There's a tension here, as with many aspects of our salvation, of an already reality and a not yet. Jesus' atonement has already taken away the guilt of our sin, and it is taking away the power of our sin, and it will take away the presence of sin, ultimately. Similarly, our justification, the declaration that we are righteous before God, has already occurred in the present. You have been declared righteous through Christ. And yet, we await a day of future vindication in the heavenly courtroom. Likewise, the adoption papers have already been signed. We experience the royal family privileges now. We will receive the fullness of adoption in the future. Paul in Romans 8 explicitly ties this future aspect of our adoption as sons to the redemption of our bodies. The Spirit is the down payment of a future inheritance to come. The Spirit has already made us alive. We have been resurrected on the inside, as it were. We are alive together with Christ. We're seated with Him already in the heavenly places as royal sons. The down payment of the Spirit makes this happen. But if it is a down payment, then we know that the full possession of it is yet to come. Because we've been united with Christ and adopted in the Son, we too shall be raised bodily like Him and publicly vindicated. Our adoption will be publicly made known. It will be revealed on the last day when all things are made new. And not just our bodies, but the whole earth. All of creation will be made new. We saw before that the creation was cursed in Adam's fall. And his relationship with creation was one of frustration and enmity. The new Adam, the faithful son, has borne that curse and will set right man's relationship with the creation. Paul says the creation itself in Romans 8 is groaning and waits with eager longing for the day when the adopted sons of God will be revealed. The creation, the creation was subjected to futility and bondage, but now eagerly awaits to be set free and enjoy the freedom along with the adopted sons. The creation wants to be governed by faithful sons and fulfill its God-given purpose. In Psalm 2, the Father speaks to the Son, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. The Son has been crowned with glory and honor and has asked the Father for these things. And because we are adopted in the Son, we are co-heirs with Christ, co-rulers, kings and queens, who will inherit the nations and possess the ends of the earth. We will reign over the world to come. Paul says, all things are ours. All things are ours. Jesus bought and paid for this world with his precious blood, and now it belongs to us as an inheritance because we are adopted. The most glorious story we can ever imagine has come true for us. We are living the ultimate rags to riches story. 
We've been brought out of desolation, out of a miserable situation. We've been delivered from slavery to sin and death, from an expectation of eternal misery. We have a clean slate and a clean break from the past. Everything we were before Christ no longer ultimately defines us. We've been made members of the royal family with a father who loves us and has compassion on us. A father who has given us the spirit of his son to enable us to walk in true freedom and fulfill our true purpose of becoming a mature son in the image of the son. We've been given the privileges of a son and we have the promise that we will have new glorified bodies like the son and will rule and reign with him over the renewed creation forever and ever. And all praise be to God, we shall truly live happily ever after. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.